Welcome to another episode of Table Talk. If this is your first time listening, Table Talk is a podcast where we try and take any subject, any topic, and connect it back to the Christian faith. And we're not doing that for religious people. Just You're so welcome if you wouldn't call yourself religious. We want to make this uh, a fun and really engaging podcast for anyone, as long as you're up for having a good think about a topic. And the topic that Graham and I wanted to bat around this week was the idea of competition, particularly competitive sport, and ask the question, is that good for us? Like, is competition good? And without digging too much further into that topic, uh, what we thought we'd do is bring in a special guest, as always. And we've got Dano in the studio, who you'll hear from in just a sec. But Dano's director of Cambridge Football Club and also head of an organisation called Christian and Sports. So he's in this world, right? We're really grateful, Dano, for you joining us in our virtual studio. And you're really welcome. Well, thank you very much indeed. Uh, it really is in my world when we're having to wrestle how to compete well and how to do it properly. So I'm buzzing to have a chance to banter it with Brilliant. you. Brilliant. Let's get straight into it. So, Dano, first question here. On a scale of sort of, I don't really care, to, you know, <laughs> insanely competitive, where would you put yourself on that scale? Well, I'm a 60-year-old man, so uh, <laughs> it's, it's tragic if I said insanely competitive still. But I reckon until I was 50, I was an absolute nutter. So I still hate losing. We had a game, uh, we're recording this uh, on a Friday, on Tuesday night, Cambridge were Cheltenham. Uh, in League One. Cheltenham haven't won at home yet this year. Uh, we hadn't won away, but we've won all our home games. Uh, we were 1-0 up. We lost 2-1. I travelled home for two and a half hours with a fellow director, and we didn't say anything all the way home. It, yeah. It's pathetic. <laughs> I, the bottom line is, on a Saturday night, I've been married for 40 years. I've never committed to a Saturday night out in my life. So we never accept an invitation in the football season. It's mm. pathetic in so many ways, and we'll come back to it. There's strengths to that. There's some absolute nonsense in it. So I'm afraid that's who you've got in the studio. Love that, though, because I, I think this is often an interesting distinction to make. Is it that you you have to win? Are you driven to win? Or is it that you hate losing? Ooh. Oh, what a brilliant, brilliant question. Easy, easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Hate losing. Yeah. Uh, the, the joy of winning is never as great as the tragedy of losing. It always feels worse to lose than it feels good to win. I have no idea why. I should be able to, since I'm on a podcast with you. <laughs> I think unless you're a serial winner, I mean, seriously, you know, if you if you are the best mm. in the world or I don't know, you play for Man City or something like that, then I think it would be reversed. But for most of us where in professional football, certainly, if you've got a 40% win ratio as a manager, you're a genius, mm. unless you're Guardiola. So if you win four out of 10, you are massively employable. Therefore, you don't win six. So I think that's where it lies. Yeah, losing is the bad thing, uh, really. Yeah, that's what makes you really fed up. Yeah. Okay, I want to... I want to dig deep into Dano. It's not that deep. <laughs> it is. No, it's not that deep. Can you like look back on your childhood or your parents or your family or can you trace this kind of competitive not wanting to lose back to that? Or is it just always been in your blood? I've got one sister, two, a mum and a dad. They could not understand this when I was a child. I was I was a terrible child. You know the drill. I bet you were there. You know, if you're playing snakes and ladders or Ludo or something and you're losing or drafts, if you're losing all the best, see you later, Mr. Board, on the floor, bits everywhere, not a chance. 
not losing. If you're not winning, no one's winning. They were calm, easygoing. My dad loved watching rugby, wasn't a player. My mum wasn't sporty or competitive in that way. Nor my sister. So I, I, no, I don't know where it came from. All I know is I've met thousands of people like me. And I guess that's where we're going because there's, there's tremendous strengths in being wired like this. Mm. I mean, there's tremendous benefits, but there are some horrendous faults in it, aren't there? I can I can only say I'm just so glad I'm not the only one, Dana. When it comes to like a family board game or something, I always feel terrible. If I'm losing, it's just yes, yeah, it's, it's not. It doesn't go well. But I'm glad that I've met a sort of kindred spirit in that. I'm not the only one. Can I just say he he is quite bad, Dana. Like he's quite he's he quite bad. Yeah, I can say that. Yeah. Uh, honestly, I can't handle it, and I'm the same as you, Dana. I, it's the losing. I used to play a lot of cricket, and I would open the batting. And if I had a if I if I didn't play well or if I got out cheaply, I, I will never forget. So Gordonston's been in the news recently because it's King it's where King Charles went for for, for school. But uh, we used to play them at cricket, and oh, they were just our arch rivals. And I remember I got out for I think five or six once. And I, I just went. I, I was on my own for an hour afterwards. I just went for a walk. I couldn't handle it. Couldn't speak to anyone. <laughs> didn't want to. Didn't want to be near anyone. I just went and sat on my own for an hour. <laughs> I'll tell you a story there, then Graham, about a cricketer who, when I was a fifteen, sixteen-year-old boy, my school cricket team was short, shorter players. One May afternoon, and and I got taken along, but they were all six formers, obviously. So we played the game, and I'll come back to him later. But a guy who was a Christian, who was in, who was captain, who was top man at school, best sportsman, and he was out. He opened the batting, and he was out really cheaply. I was batting number five, I think. So I, I was I was padding up when he came in. He came in the change rooms, and he flung his bat across the chain. Didn't think anyone was there. He flung his bat against the far wall. And I'd known he was a Christian for two years, and I thought I could never be one of them because because they couldn't possibly be sporty enough. And when that lad threw his bat. I went inside, yes, yes. And he turned in inside, he didn't hear me, and then he saw me. And he was horrified because he thought he was a bad representation of what counted in life, you know, losing with dignity and stuff. And I was just thrilled that he could call himself a Christian and be ultra competitive and hate going out. So actually, as you tell me that story, I'm thinking that was a massive existential tipping point for me. Seeing somebody who was a Christian, really good at sport, he was the only one I knew, and hated losing. Wow, that could be me, I thought. I remember that. I was about 16. Dan, you're making me feel so much better <laughs> in all these <laughs> I'm, I'm really hey. enjoying speaking to you so far. This is very you just You just wait. You just wait, Graham, okay? Right? Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. so... We'll get into it. Dan, when would you say you reached the peak of your kind of competitive sport? Or were you yet to reach your peak, do you think? <laughs> you know, in all in all seriousness, the highest sporting thing I ever did was from school. I, I ended up playing f- football and I signed for Cardiff City when I was, um, you know, end, end of school, year 11. But I had a brilliant head teacher at school, amazing. He really persuaded my parents not to let me be an apprentice professional and move to Cardiff. So I ended up in the sixth form, going to Cardiff every weekend and half terms and holidays for two years. And I ended up going to university in Cardiff and doing philosophy so I could train every day because there were only four lectures and two seminars in a week. Uh, so I lived at Club Diggs 
and trained every day. So I did that right through uh, sixth form uh, university. Obviously never played in the first team, uh, youth team, reserves and so on. Graduated, signed for Cambridge United, were in the same league as Cardiff, which at the time was the championship, and made my debut in the league for them. My second game was Cardiff City away, actually, <laughs> lost 5-0. That wasn't so good. But I would say then it was my middle 20s. Uh, I stopped being a pro then. I wasn't good enough. I mean, it was all right. I was good enough to get to there. And then you have to work out what you're going to do with the rest of your wow. life. So I would say the pinnacle, if you like, of playing was in my middle 20s. Though I carried on playing semi-professionally and non-league sort of stuff and managing right through into my later 40s. So I've stayed in football all that time and I've enjoyed it much more than that than I did in my early 20s. But that was the peak of, I suppose, sporting achievement, probably. Brilliant. And... Dan, maybe just to get into, because I think this is a really interesting discussion around, is competition good? What are the best aspects? Is it bad? What are the worst aspects of competition? So maybe to touch on kind of competition at its best in your career, where would you say you've seen like competitiveness at its best and showing through in its its best way? I think they're two very different things, aren't they? You see it at its, at its best when there's unbelievable respect uh, that people have when they're competing against each other. So you think of the great three of tennis, which is obviously now beginning to come to an end. Uh, And you see Federer or Nadal, for example, when they play each other. It's always tight. It's always close. Competere is a bit boffinish, isn't it? But it's from Latin, competere. It's about pushing each other. It's not a negative word at all. It's striving together, literally. So to compare, to compete is to strive together. So when you see two athletes massively pushing each other towards excellence, like those two, that sport at its highest level, I think that's when you see it at its best. And, and therefore, by definition, doesn't matter what level of sport you play, when you're familiar with an opponent, whether it be a team or an individual, when you play against those kids, you know this is going to be all in. And I think think when you do play sports somewhere inside you sort of rejoice in those games because you're on tiptoes that's when it's at its best and that that's quite magnificent and you can lose those games without deep despair funnily enough mm. yeah. i think there's a despondency to failure which is a grading and you can lose some games and you go dear dear me i played the best i could there i couldn't have done more and that's a good feeling it's certainly not a terrible feeling i really like your example I don't know why. I love your example of tennis. I just, I know we can't get into grading sport, right? But it seems something very pure about the competition in tennis versus other sports. You know, three, four hour, five setter. Oh, it's just gripping to watch. Jacko, it's really different. Most of my working life for Christians in sport has been in elite sport. Naturally, the majority of it is with professional football. But at times, I, I've I've subbed when staff changes happen and so on. So I've spent quite a lot of time, for example, in the last few years in the Diamond League, Com Games, uh, sort of global track and field events, and funnily enough, tennis. So I've been on the tennis tour quite a lot, meeting with the Christian players and those who are interested in, in Christian faith who are on the tour uh, during tournaments and in hotels and that kind of thing. And there is a difference. Uh, you really have hit the nail on the head there because my life in team sports and the competitive aspect of it, it was brought into stark contrast with that's it. For example, if, if it's a five-setter and it's a few hours, you know, football's over in a it feels like nothing when you're losing or, or holding on to a victory. The game's over in no time. But it's you on your own. There's nobody you can blame. You are utterly responsible for that game of tennis. 
And if it's a big game and everyone's watching you, it's you and him and everybody can see the intensity of the mental struggle and the technical struggle. And you rarely, I mean, you get the odd scrap, don't you? The odd scrapper in tennis who causes trouble, but there's amazing respect for each other. But you know what I watched there? I won't ramble here, but since you brought up tennis, it's really, it struck me so deeply. Most players on the tour never talk to each other. Can you believe that? You know, people go around the world on these tours, yeah. athletes and tennis and golf, they're in a bubble of their own. No. So they may be in the same hotels, the same parts of the world. If Unless it's a team event, if it's the individual event, they barely, not, not out of malice, they barely oh, talk so to each other. It's so fascinating, isn't it? Amazing. They'll be traveling six months of the year around the world, and it would be as if they've just met on the golf course or, or, or on the tee or on the court. They do not socialize together. It's a very individualized world. It's so different to teams on tour in, sp in team sports. Wow. That is fascinating. Wow. I'd love to dig isn't into it? that because there's a lot of psychology well, in there, isn't there? I suspect there's one pretty straightforward thing that it, if you cultivate an individual sport as a child, you know, it may cultivate the way you are and the way you get energy and the way you love to live. So an individual sports person is a very different animal to a team athlete. And therefore, at the highest level, when it's so intense, when you're competing, your energy is gleaned by being on your own. Mm. Amazing to watch. I used to go into these hotels at the beginning. It was only a few years ago and think, well, they'll all be hanging out together and having a bite to eat and having a laugh. No chance. Totally on your jack, really. So well, interesting. Yeah. Because for me, what fascinates me about that elite sort of pinnacle level of sport, and I agree, tennis is a really, a really fascinating example of this because it's so individual. And I think for me, I'm always fascinated by, you know, those top 10 in the world. And then you get to the top mm. three and you sort of, you talked there yeah. about the, the Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, this era. It's the tiniest, the fractions of a percent that they have to think about. And so that sense of I'm just, I have to focus. I have to find a routine that works for me. And I can totally imagine that, that, you know, you, you might enjoy their company. And clearly, you know, Federer and Nadal seem to get on very, very well. But I can imagine when it's the majors and they're, they're in their zone, that there's just nothing penetrates that bubble because they just have to be there no, in order to beat even anyone else in the top 10, they have to be on their on their game. Well, I know this is, we're, we're talking competition, but I'm not a fan <laughs> in football because, you know, it's been, it's been like a job, if you like. It, it, it feels like a job. So you can't think like a fan when people say, who do you support? I, I can't answer it. It doesn't work like that. But in something like tennis, which I've got to know the last few years, or track and field, I am a fan. Hmm. So amazing things. You know, Wimbledon, practice courts. It's incredible. So all these people are playing Wimbledon. You know, they're past the qualifiers. It's week one. So all these practice courts are right at the back there. Public can't go. So, so if you're there watching, it's amazing. The Federer, I, I can picture it in my mind's eye now from about just before COVID. Federer walks off the practice court. Professional tennis players who are playing Wimbledon are leaving their courts to have their selfie taken with no. Federer. Yes, but they're actually playing in the tournament. And it's not a one-off. With, with those top three or four, people will be leaving the court for two minutes to go and have a selfie. <laughs> wow. Because now you start talking about competition because, as you rightly say, Graham, the, the top, top handful, they know it's one of those five who's going to win. Mm. You've got to be on tiptoes, Jacko, isn't it? You, you can't – anything left and you're finished because it's too good. But for everybody else in 
the US Open at Wimbledon, go around the world. For everyone else in that tournament, they pretty much know they're making up the numbers and they're trying to be as good as they can. If there are 110 in the world, they're trying to make the money they need to be on the tour for the next event to pay their bills. And they will not have the bitterness of defeat in them when they're playing a, a 30 seed. Mm. It's a different type of competition mm. now. But watching it from the Brilliant. outside, you'd never imagine that mm. another pro would be <laughs> selfie. So, yeah. so interesting, isn't it? You've, you've seen this throughout your career. You also studied philosophy, having witnessed competition at that sort of level. And as you say, in its best form of that deep respect, driving each other to high performance. Having seen this, having witnessed it, done all that research, what do you think that says about human nature? I think what it says is there's an incredibly difficult balance to find between, look, my pop way of calling it is an, is an identity, a feeling of belonging in society, which is based on your achievements, or which you say, well, I've received an identity which is solid regardless of my performance or attainment. Mm, so yeah. my short answer that will be received identity or achieved identity because lots of modern spiel really isn't it is about how his identity formed in society and so on so to make that more straightforward uh, the drive the drivenness the desire to achieve success whether that's as a child at school academically musically sport that achievement orientation is a magnificent facet of being human and it's pretty hard to be human without a vision human beings are creative and visionary and want to make things happen it's when that gets when that becomes overwhelming that you end up with malign unwelcomed competitiveness mm. nastiness aggression anger spite malice feelings of failure so somewhere in there the whole modern conversation about holistic care for athletes for example uh, regardless of religious faith or christian faith constantly talks about the need to find a more holistic aspect to being a footballer for example or a tennis player than just achievement so in there i think is the line that we're trying to discuss here. And Dana, just to follow up on that, do you think, because this this is immediately drawing me, and we just talked about Federer and Nadal, Federer just announced his retirement this week. We've had a few other very high profile ones. I mean, Serena Williams, same same month, end of eras in sport there. And I, I always think back to sort of Johnny Wilkinson, for example, stories where players have retired who have been very, very, you know, at the very pinnacle and they've retired and suddenly had this kind of moment of crisis almost. And that sense of, well, it's it's this achieved status versus I have a solid understanding of who I am and therefore I'm driven to, to be competitive. Those two things would, would result yes. in very different feelings at that point in your career, I would imagine. A spot on, Graham. And I think for my understanding of it almost now, if we go to the absolute foundations, the first premise of all this, when we talk about competition, our broader concept here. I think we must separate two things out. And when we get this wrong, we make what we might call a category error. So self-worth and self-knowledge are very different concepts. So if you like, if we, if we equate a received identity with self-worth, it's absolutely foundational when you retire, when you get injured, when you lose, that somewhere deeply embedded in your psyche is the security that says I am valuable whether I win or lose today. Of course, a, a balanced home, a happy home, 
happy upbringing, so many factors contribute to this. But fundamentally, self-worth is pivotal to well-being. For elite athletes, we'd have a player welfare officer who's constantly trying to draw people to the breadth of experience that gives them self-worth. Other skills they have, abilities they have, family, lives outside, the intensity of trying to make it. The self-knowledge can be really, really healthy. Losing or getting dropped or deselected for a game because you're not doing what's required to get your place in the team, for example. That's about knowing yourself. It's about knowing what you can contribute to the cause of the team if it's a team sport. And it's very, very healthy to look square in the mirror and say, actually, I know more about my ability and inability now, and I need to tweak this if I'm going to stay at this level. So long as your self-worth is in situ, then you've got a chance of having a healthy view of competition or self-knowledge or self-awareness. Can we bring that back yeah. to you, Dano? Like, were you, were, yeah. was it age 26, did you say, when you were playing for Cambridge United and you, was it about that time when you reached your pinnacle and you looked around and you're like, you weren't sure if you could go any further, is that right, around then? Yeah, spot on, Jack. I was younger than that, middle 20s. This is what happened to me, so it's a, it's a very existential experience. I, I didn't have any kind of faith, and I came to a Christian faith at the age of 21, 22. My boyhood hero, uh, nobody will have, I mean, he's a very famous man, but it's, it's a long time ago. Uh, Kevin Keegan was my boyhood hero. He was a top, top England player, captain and so on. He played his last season in professional football at Newcastle and they were in the championship and we were as well. He was my boyhood hero. I played against him at St. James's Park and ridiculously scored at the far post with a tap-in. We lost. We're in the Guinness Book of Records from that period. We played 31 games between October and March, 83 to 84. Drew four, lost 27. And I played in all of them. But in that period, we played Newcastle. Keegan was my hero. It was like hot sand running through my fingers. I dreamt of this since I was a little boy. There he was. I'm on the pitch. It was ridiculous. I couldn't believe it. But the anticlimax was intense over the next couple of weeks. And the only thing I could think of was my mate to play cricket with me. What a faith in Christ, a Christian faith. So, so that amalgam led me to come to a personal faith over the next year or so after that game. The reason I tell that story is that that played all kinds of good havoc with my self-worth. I mean, all kinds of, even the simplest thing. I went along to church and there were loads of people at church. Some liked the football, but hardly anyone was interested in Cambridge United. And I'm a 22-year-old bloke and I'm meeting Hmm. old people, young people, kids. I go along and help with the youth club. All of a sudden, I'm in a new city. I'm 400 miles from home. I'm on my own but I'm not on my own anymore. And when I go to this place, they don't care if I'm a football player. It doesn't matter to them whatsoever. They're just good people and they like they, they make me feel like I belong. There's something that was holistic about all that, uh, Jacko. There was something distinctive about that that put the football with all its intensity and public stress. You're only talking 6,000 fans watching us in a home game, but it's, it's 6,000 more than you'd be used to normally. And It matters so deeply what the papers say, but there was an equilibrium about self-worth that I was valuable in this case to God, regardless of Saturday. Mm. And there's no question it changed my well-being, perspectives, ability to deal with failure. And that's why when we joke at the beginning, I am mega competitive like all sporty kids have been. 
but there is zero question in my mind, and I've obviously I've researched it, that there's an equilibrium that can be found when your self-worth is intact, when your identity is intact, regardless of performance or achievement. That is a beautiful thing. It's a great thing. Uh, and that's why I love to talk about it with people at, in professional football. So helpful. I think, though, we've got to talk about competition at its worst. I mean, you've touched on it a few yeah. times, but kind of yeah. almost to persuade us, our listeners, of why that's such an important equilibrium. Let's just talk about it, like mm. how bad it can mm. get when competition gets a grip of us in a horrible way, I guess. You know, where have you seen that in your own life oh, and yeah. in sport and more generally? I've been in numerous dressing rooms where there's an almighty fight, you know, a proper fist fight between two players. Um, you've heard people say the most horrendous things to each other. Uh, so I, I think when we're saying about it at its worst now, actually, see, see what I've just done. It's not when it's me against you or your team against mine. Because that's kind of understandable that sp things spill over, right? And it's, you know you're in trouble when two people in the same changing room are so angry with each other for failure. They would do anything to each other. People have told me about Patrick Vieira, who's the palace manager. He's huge, six foot four, six foot five. He's won the World Cup. He played for Arsenal for years, a top player. Never raises his voice. Never has to have a fight to prove anything. And there's all famous stories of Roy Keane and him fighting when he's at Arsenal. As a manager, they say Vieira is just calm presence and he treats people with dignity. Very hard to have a changing room then where the malign, shocking aspects of over-competitiveness happen. But there's something here about forming a culture inside a changing room or a club. And the onus for that lies on the leader. What about bringing that back to individual sports? Just quickly, because we talked a lot about tennis. For example, a Kyrgios or maybe a young McEnroe. Yeah. What about those guys yes. where there's yeah. something where it bubbles over in not a nice way when they start? The crowd, the, the umpires, the, 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 the players' boxes, like the, you see the way Kyrgios speaks to his... His friends, even. Yeah. Can you talk to that quickly? Because you've talked about the changing room. I think that's really helpful. But what about individual sports? Very good. And I certainly wouldn't want Nick Curios to hear me slagging him off because I don't know him. I've never talked to him properly. Uh, and I'm not about to judge him because I don't know him. Every individual is different. And these, were, these are young men. McEnroe was a young man when this was happening. And there is something about the pastoral or sensitive care from a coach or a parent or a leader that does its best for a young person like that and all you'd want to see is progress i think i really like the way you're speaking graham you know as a kid who threw the leaderboard across the room and as someone who struggled with this i like your sympathy like i can see that you you know you don't want to judge those guys you actually really want to put an arm around them you think you know about other people's worlds when you hear them talk about it and i've learned over the years that actually stay in my lane a little bit. If you get to see these people or have a conversation with them, you see life's far more complicated than the block on the screen. And there's an empathy with that, isn't there? I also think it's really interesting there that we called out a couple of people that have just been, I think, they've been fascinating characters because of their level of intensity in, in Kyrgios and in McEnroe. And I think McEnroe is a really interesting example because, Dana, you've been talking about needing to have a formed identity that is solid so that you can deal with 
any knocks that come your way or any failure that comes your way. It was interesting because it felt to me like McEnroe was kind of in the other direction. It was like yeah. he had such phenomenal success. He was winning majors. He was number one in the world. He was wealthy beyond anything he'd ever imagined. He could do anything he wanted. What was really interesting about him was he came to this moment of, of sort of realization that that wasn't making him happy. Uh -huh. And it was almost the other direction. And it was like his his sense of identity almost hadn't it, it hadn't gone through that cauldron of like loss and struggle and, and being dropped to have to form it. It had never really gone through that. And so he was suddenly in these amazingly great times and realizing this is empty and hollow. Uh, what do I, where do I go from here? I can't go any further up. And it, that for me no, was no. fascinating in the other direction of like, how did he deal with that then? And there's your Gaza, there's your George Best. Right. From the word go, they're the, they are top. My response is unusually succinct on this one. It is that I never view a player and no one I work with in elite sport ever views a player uh, in the now. All the work happens when they retire. All of it. Uh, these women and men, by their mid-30s, at the latest, nearly all the time, they're out of the public eye. A fraction of people recognize them two years after they've retired. So the work of being a rounded human being, trying to form that in somebody so that it's completed by 25 is hopeless, obviously. And you've got to take a long view of it. And that's why I love McEnroe now. When you hear him now, what the yeah. films come out, yeah. isn't it? When you read about the despair that he went through later in his life, when I meet with very, very wealthy athletes who are massively addicted to gambling and gamble away hundreds of thousands of pounds, or they drink now that their career's over, they're alcoholics, really. It's so lonely. So it's a great mistake for us to diagnose the issue of self-worth uh, against self-knowledge when a man or a woman are in their early 20s and everybody in the world knows them. It cannot be done in that time frame. It's a long game. I think in, in response to some of these potentially sort of troubling or, or dangerous aspects of competition, it feels like there's a temptation to remove it altogether. And I know, you know, it's something that I hear a lot of people sort of ranting about is things like, you know, participation medals. Everyone turned up, everyone gets a medal, no one wins or loses, you, you were just there. And, you know, but I would just be interested to hear from your perspective. Like, is that, is it a bad thing at its core? How do we manage that in a healthy way? Two things that come to mind. One, I've already said that it's a simple category error. It's it's not clear thinking to, to fail to differentiate. If you fail to differentiate that a person's self-worth can never be contingent on their competitive success, you must clarify those two things a person is always more than their competitive success, whether that's in the markets in the city of London or, or at school. Capitalism itself is built on this whole thing. So if you can't differentiate those, that's poor thinking. Number two, healthy competitiveness is a magnificent aspect of being human, which is what we talked mm. about at the beginning. Uh, my understanding is that the, the God who made us as a Christian uh, we're made like him, it says in the early chapters of the Bible, in his image. And two things stand out in those stories about how we're like God. We're creative and relational. So as a kid, when I walked onto the rugby or soccer field as a seven-year-old, 
I would dream of the game that before I went out to play, I'd, I'd want to do certain things. Like all my life, you're thinking, what if we played like this? What if I tried that trick? What if I could beat him and get a cross in? You're constantly dreaming of what you can create. And all of it has to happen with players around you and coaches and opponents. You have to have relationships, learning how to deal with conflict. And it can only happen if you've got to create a win. So I would say separate the categories that your value is independent of your success, but rejoice that it is best being stretched to be as good to compare, to strive together, to be as capable as you can with other human beings is a magnificent divine aspect of being truly human. So as a Christian, I'm fully embedded in a context where my best creativity and my lifelong relationships have generally come from sport and the friendships and the depth and the history of them in a city where I've played sport for 40 years is just a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. So I love, I, I love it, but it's my bag. It's obviously your bag, but this can be done with any creativity, can't it? Any competition, if you like, any talents that mm. people can share together. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm interested, Dano. Do you think Jesus would have been mm. a fan of competitive sport? Is in, do you think Jesus would have got stuck in to some sport? Because the issue is, and you've said it yourself, you thought Christians mm. were boring and not competitive. I'm sorry, a lot of people out there would think, He's a bit, okay, he's a nice guy. Don't get me wrong. I think everyone thinks he was a nice guy, but that he's a bit wet in the sense that he did he doesn't have what you'd see in like Federal or Nadal fighting it out. You couldn't necessarily see Jesus flying in for a Patrick Vieira style tackle as a defensive <laughs> midfielder. Is that what you're saying, Jacko? <laughs> That's what I'm saying, mate. That's what I'm saying. So talk to us about that because... That's that must be important to you in your Christian faith, right? Yeah, of course it is. <laughs> I'm forever saying there's two parts to my answer, only because I'm buying time. I think the f- the first part of this is, I think there's a genuine issue, regardless of. Uh, we'll come back to Jesus flying into a tackle in a minute, <laughs> but there's a genuine there's a genuine cultural problem for me as a Christian that there there is a significant risk that sport has become a god in so many ways, socially and culturally. We raise it to a level where we expect more from it than we ought to. So there are Marxist critiques of sport, of course, where they say, look, you know, sport is the opium of the masses, if you like, rather than religion, uh, because it's an opium that sort of stops people from seeing the world for what it really is. And you idolize it and you worship your team and it consumes your identity formation. And that's a tragedy. So I think there are genuine concerns, if you're asking me as a Christian, about the worship that is foisted upon us sometimes in sport. Mm. No, so just to summarise that, it's it's, it's a beautiful thing at its best when it's, you were explaining like the creativity, the relationships it fosters and the way it pushes you. It's, It's a beautiful thing, but it's not big enough to be the reason we're on this planet. Like Sport is just not big enough. Yes, and we try and make it that big. Yeah. Sometimes, for economic reasons, largely. <laughs> but the Marxists would say, you yeah. know, for control reasons yeah. and so on. I wish I could be as succinct as you, Jacko. That would be much better <laughs> in an interview. And, and so to go to the Jesus making a tackle thing, I, I think if we take the concepts I've used so far, 
and I'm doing it on the hoof a little bit, but I think they work. When you actually read, when you, you physically take one of the four accounts of the life of Jesus and read it from beginning to end, you do without a shadow of doubt see an equilibrium which he knows his self-worth. So in our terms, he knows who his father in heaven is. He knows that there is a security in that and he has no doubt about it. So when the competition comes his way, when the battle comes his way, so that the night before he's crucified, where we're told he's sweating blood because he is absolutely terrified of the failure that's coming his way tomorrow and the defeat, the ostensible public humiliation. When he has come into the world and he's been two years saying, I am God's representative. He is going to flop massively within 12 hours. And yet, because he knows who he is, he is prepared to back all on his identity as God's son, not his performance as the expected Messiah. And he goes to the cross. So if there was ever a competitive scene in history, it's that garden where he's sweating it out. And they say to him, beat him up and smash his head in the next morning and put a pretend crown on him and nail his hands to a cross and they throw him up standing up and he can't breathe. At that point, I don't think I've ever played in a football match or ever been in a tackle where there's, there's that kind of pain and despair, right? That, that makes um, a five-setter with Federer look like a piece of cake. A piece Just of for cake. our listeners, they might not be able to follow this. So people said to Jesus when he was on the cross, mate, if you yeah. are actually God, come down. Like, why are you... As you said, losing. Yes. Like, what, why are you losing? You can win. So can you just help our listeners yes. with that? Because it, it is a bit confusing, isn't it? I keep wanting to say what counts about him is the definitive example because he's a definitive human being because he's a God become a man. He's the paradigm of what it is to be human and what he can help us to be. And what we see in him is an unequivocal certainty that who he is, his worth is in his relationship with his father. That's what we receive almost when you become a Christian. My identity, meaning, purpose in this world is predicated on my worth to God. Jesus had to purchase that worth for us. He had to pay so that we who don't deserve it get it. And therefore, your identity is secure. So when Jesus is told, get off, go on, get off then, he knew that victory meant dying and to win was to lose. He had to die because if he didn't die, then a day would come for me when I'd have to face the punishment I deserve because Jesus is perfect and I'm not. Because you threw the Ludo board across the room. Exactly. Can we ground that in your experience, just going back to your mid-20s? You said you're in a bit of an existential crisis. You're kind of in a tailspin. But you it sounded like you started to grasp that. So how is that taking root in your life and actually helped you enjoy competition in a healthy way? Well, Jacko, it just, there's a fulfillment that was immediate. I can't pretend there's anything else. You're meant to find all your fulfillment from making it. You're meant to find all your joy in life from being a pro. And then you realize quicker that you can't. And all players know it. All players know it. Once you've played professional sport for a few years, you know it's not all it's cracked up to be. You know. You get injured. You get dropped. Nobody, manager doesn't like you, all that. And then you've got nothing. You've got nothing. It's depressing. Christ fills the existential void. Fulfillment. Second of two, existentially, security. 
You have to present yourself all the time in elite sport, confident. Play next week at a mayor today. Don't worry about next week. I'll be on it. You have to speak to the press. You have to be big in front of your teammates if it's a team sport, your opponents. If it, you've got to be big. You've got to be present. And inside you cry. And there's a security when you know Christ that is unattainable in professional sport. Unattainable. And in any competitive business with driven people. So those existential things, to give you a long answer, Jacko, those existential things are magnificent. Not perfect, flawed. You get down, you get low, you get scared. But there's a new strength that you just had no idea was possible in elite sport. No idea. And there it is. It's Christ. Absolutely brilliant. I, I, I was really not expecting the analogy of sport to be so powerful in this context, if I'm completely honest. I thought it was a really interesting topic. I didn't really expect we'd go here. But actually, it's such a useful analogy of just unpicking all of these really complicated things that I think can lead to such existential feelings of crisis for someone. So it's just been really, really interesting to listen to you, Dano. And perhaps just to try and just, because I think we've explored a, a lot of really interesting stuff here. We've gone down a few different sort of avenues of, of discussion. To maybe pull those threads back together, in conclusion, is competition good for us? How do we summarize yeah. that? <laughs> I think it's good for us. Yes. And I think I can be really succinct now. This is like a drawing in your thesis or something. Here we <laughs> yeah. go. Uh, dear Graham Daniels uh, and listeners to the conversation with Graham and Jack, here's what I'm thinking. Differentiate your value as a human being from your performance on the field. They're not the same. Realize that you have value and worth regardless of whether you win or lose. That's the first thing. Get that clear. That liberates you to a certain extent to really go for it, to try and achieve the best you possibly can with the gifts and talents and the teammates and the opponents that you've been given. Strive, really strive, but always in the context that you have value. And as a Christian, your value is found that God loves you regardless of your performance. So good. Dano, so, so helpful. And what I wanted to say as well is just whatever that field is, right? Like if you're a pro sports person, of course, if it's your career, if you've just become a parent, if you're in a marriage, if you know, whatever that field is, right, it's applicable. And I just I love that analogy because it's so powerful in so many ways. So Dano, honestly, I've, I've loved speaking to you. It's been so much fun. Thank you so much for sharing all your thoughts, your wisdom, your experience with us. It's absolutely my pleasure. I wasn't expecting it to be so much fun either. (laughs) Right. What you can do is go on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and listen to a few episodes and give us a five-star rating, please. You're on. If you fancy it. Well, thanks for that check, my brother. (laughs) 